0: From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm your host. It's September, and we're back. Did you miss us? We definitely missed you. So happy to be back and bringing you a very timely episode for the back-to-school season. In August, the ACLU, along with partner organizations, filed a challenge to Florida's Stop Woke Act, a censorship law which restricts educators and students from learning and talking about issues related to race and gender in the classroom. This isn't the first law we've seen like this. Education gag orders have been introduced in 40 states, and nearly 20 states across the country have passed these kinds of laws. Florida's law, we argue, violates the 1st and 14th Amendments by imposing viewpoint-based restrictions on educators and students that are both vague and discriminatory. Additionally, the law violates the Equal Protection Clause because it was enacted with the intent to discriminate against Black educators and students. Today, we're digging in and speaking with two of our clients who are impacted by this law, as well as one of the ACLU's lead attorneys on the case. We hope you enjoy the episode.
1: This spring, I interned with Representative Anafi Eskamani. And um, they told us to research some bills, and the one I chose was HB7.
0: This is Johanna Dauphin, a senior at Florida State University. This summer, as an intern in the Florida legislature, she had a close-up look at House Bill 7, or the Stop Woke Act. She was deeply disturbed by what she learned.
1: When I was looking at it, I thought it was a joke. Like, when I was reading the language of the bill, I was like, LOL, like, this can't be for real. Like, y'all can't be for real right now. But it was very real. It was very for real. I was amused because of the absurdity of it, but it got really serious um, when I saw it actually, like, passing through the legislature. So that's what inspired me to testify against it. It was kind of short notice, like, when I found out about the bill for the first time and started reading about it. it, was within the same, like, week Week and a half time frame that I ended up testifying against the bill.
0: What was that decision like? Why did you decide that you were going to be the one to stand up against this?
1: I had a lot of personal experiences in high school, in particular, that just made this bill really infuriating. And I just had to say something because I felt like our legislators were kind of delusional they're kind of out of touch they haven't been in school in decades they're old not only are they old but like most of them are white so they have no idea what students of color black and brown students are experiencing at their schools in 2022 and 2021 and 2020 we're telling you that y'all's kids are terrorizing us like that's what we're trying to communicate to y'all cuz they don't know anything about anything And it makes it really hard to be Black or to be a minority or uh, come from a marginalized community and go to a public school. And that's the perspective that they're not hearing. When I said in my first testimony, your kids are not as colorblind as you think they are, you could see some people's faces in the background just get really sour because everyone's convinced that we live in like such a post-racial society and kids don't see color. And it's like, when I was in elementary school, Someone didn't drink after a Black student at the water fountain when we were in the line for PE. And when we asked him, like, why you're holding up the line, he said, like, I can't drink after them because they're Black, right? So when I got to high school, I, I wasn't as familiar with, like, interpersonal racism. So I was writing it down every time something happened. And by the end of ninth grade, I was just like, you know, this is business as usual. I think the most distinctly traumatizing experience for me was um, in a debate class. It was very unstructured kind of class. It was an elective. So the teacher talked to us a lot about systemic racism, things like implicit bias and privilege and basically every talking point that would be banned under HB7. And there was this one student who, even after all of those conversations about like the economic disenfranchisement, of African Americans and redlining and why the ghetto even exists in this country and stuff like that. He was just like, well, I'm not really buying that. Because, you know, if you look at the state of Africa, and the state of black America, like, clearly, there's some kind of like genetic, biological component here that we're not talking about. This man really tried to sit up here and argue that Black people were biologically inferior in class. And that's the reason that Black America and Africa, the whole continent, is in the state that it is in right now. Um, I think at the time he was a sophomore and I was a freshman. That was very traumatizing.
0: Gosh, wow. First off, thank you for sharing that with us. And also, I'm really sorry that that has been your experience. and. It feels like this bill is going to take us back even farther when the reality was it was already quite insufficient. Were you part of any kind of education around anti-racism earlier than high school? Like It sounded like that one class included some of those themes, but was there anything intentional before that? I
1: would say my entire K-12 through experience was learning about Martin Luther King every year and reading the letter from Birmingham Jill and and learning about Rosa Parks. American history was told from a very Eurocentric perspective. For example, saying that women got the right to vote in 1920 is not the same thing as explaining that women of color, black women in particular, weren't really able to vote in large numbers until the Voting Rights Act was passed in 65. It's like so many different things happened in American history. And we just say Americans and people instead of being clear and and saying that like well only white men actually got to do this only white men got to benefit from this because that's where you have people turning around and saying like oh well my grandparents came here and they were poor and they were able to accomplish this that and the third how can your grandparents weren't able to right they couldn't and if American history was told in an honest way then there wouldn't be all this confusion when you don't have information, you fill in the gaps with your own assumptions. And those assumptions can sometimes be racist because you just don't know any better. So I would say that not only were we not having any kind of anti-racism type of conversations in K-12, but the American history is taught in a very limited way on top of that. And I don't even really count What I learned in that debate class, as much as I appreciate it, the reason I say it doesn't count is because that was a very unstructured, like, random elective. And that teacher just happened to take the opportunity to teach us what he knew. But it wasn't curriculum and it wasn't widespread. It was very unstructured.
0: So essentially, they're trying to prevent something that hasn't even started yet.
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: For Dr. Dana Thompson-Dorsey, Associate Professor of Educational Leadership and Policy Studies and the Director of the David C. Anchen Center for the Advancement of Teaching in the College of Education at the University of South Florida— The experiences that Johanna outlined are exactly why she is so passionate about culturally responsive education, and why she believes educational gag orders are a worrying trend. When I was originally
2: hired at the University of South Florida, I was hired specifically to run a center out of the College of Ed. And my research focuses on law policies, but also practices within schools, focusing on being culturally responsive to the needs of students and teachers um, and the community, but also focusing on these issues of race and racial diversity, gender diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's always been the work that I've done. And I was specifically recruited to come in and run the center. And so I came in to do the job I was meant to to do, but also was curious of how it would be done in a political landscape such as the state of Florida, and particularly after the 2020 election, because although former President Donald Trump had uh, initiated that executive order, it sort of fell on deaf ears after it was first introduced in September of 2020. It wasn't until after President Biden struck the executive order and talked about his priorities being on addressing issues of racial discrimination and racial diversity and equity in education, in the workplace, in housing, in the criminal justice system, that the discussion of critical race theory, the discussion of diversity training became a big issue in in early 2021. And then that's when I realized that that it probably was not going to be as, I'm not going to say easy, because the work that I do is never easy, but was not going to run below the radar or just be another course or just another, I was going to be just another professor doing her research, as I've always been, particularly in in Florida.
0: As you mentioned, the beginnings of all of this is not exactly new. And these conversations and the political debates that have been happening across the country around anti-racist education, all of this has been building in communities and school districts across the country. How do you see yourself navigating now that you have a really clear law in Florida that is very much targeting the work you do? Do you feel afraid to continue the work that you're doing? Well, I will say that, so I'm not afraid.
2: I will say that first and foremost. um, I know that the work that I'm doing is supposed to be done because it's, anything that I do is is grounded in literature, history, laws, current and historical, uh, legal precedents, Uh, So there's no fear for me. I think I'm often concerned about uh, teachers, particularly the school leaders that I teach who have to deal with on the K to 12 level. I'm concerned about my children being in K to 12 and um, the education they're receiving and how much watered down it's going to be how the lack of facts and truth that will now be a part of their education. But my husband and I make sure that we properly educate our, our children on the history of this country and the history of different countries around the world. And, but there's other children who are not going to get that. There are adults who haven't gotten that. Right. And still may not, whether they're in college or in the workplace. So my fears for them.
0: And when you talk about having these conversations with other educators, what in your class, what does that look like? Do other educators feel concerned? Do they know their rights? Do they know how to proceed? How is how is that all playing out? No, um, many of them don't know their rights.
2: They do by the time they finish my class. There you go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but coming in, some of the first questions they have from the first day is, "What do we do about HB seven? How do we how do we navigate our, as teachers, particularly the teachers who teach the civics and history courses and social studies, but even teachers who teach English language arts and reading because of the books, because um, you know, because there's also the the book banning." that's happening as well, that deal with similar issues. So they don't know what they can do and what they can't do. In fact, one of the neighboring school districts to Tampa, Pasco County, has asked teachers to remove all of the books that they have in their personal libraries in their classroom. All teachers have, you know, you have the school library, but all teachers have a library within their classroom and they've been told to hold off on um, or to remove the books they have and hold off on adding books until they determine which books are appropriate. And that's because of HB7, but of HB1557, which is known as the Don't Say Gay Bill. So it's unbelievable that it's not just history, but literacy, reading, uh, you know, and of course math. Because at the time that policy to ban critical race theory, and the 1619 project came out past last June. The state of Florida was also changing their curriculum for math, but it just goes to show you, you know, because they have made critical race theory the big ba- boogeyman, they want to lump everything under it as being just as bad. But they're but they're also basically saying that anything addressing the needs of students' learning and growth and development tried and true types of issues and topics that have been part of child development for years, for decades, they don't want in the classroom, maybe because it's going to influence critical thinking, which it seems to be where they want some students to lack. Um, they don't want them being able to emote in certain ways or question things or their learning or... right. What they're reading in certain ways, but even in math, they don't want these discussions that anything that can be deemed around critical race theory, social, emotional learning, or culturally relevant or culturally responsive teaching.
0: Government overreach into education concerns Leah Watson senior staff attorney for the ACLU's racial justice program. She's part of the team that filed a lawsuit against the state of Florida, and we sat down with her to learn more.
3: We sued on behalf of seven professors or educators and one student in the higher ed context. So we are challenging the provision specifically in the higher ed. There are other cases that are challenging the K-12 and employer provisions as well.
0: What are the legal arguments that we actually are able to make about the Stop Woke Act?
3: So we have four legal arguments that are under the First Amendment and the 14th Amendment. Our First Amendment argument is that the law is a viewpoint-based restriction on academic freedom. This basically means that professors have the right to decide what and how to teach. This law is not only infringing upon that right, but it's doing so in a way that permits some speech and not others. The law selects a viewpoint- and requires instructors or educators to espouse that viewpoint. They either have to take the viewpoint or they have to teach objectively and teach both sides of an argument, even where it's not an actual debate. The second claim was a viewpoint-based restriction on students' right to learn. This is where Johanna comes in. Mm-hmm. Johanna's talked a lot about her concerns that the information that will be taught this year after the Stop StopWoke Act is different from what would have been taught the previous year or in previous courses. And so for the same reasons, we have a viewpoint-based discrimination claim on behalf of Johanna. Our third claim is under the 14th Amendment. And the that claim is a vagueness claim. And it basically says the law is so vague that educators don't know what is or is not prohibited. This comes up in a variety of ways. The prohibited concepts are very strangely worded. So it can just be difficult to understand what they mean. One of them says that you cannot treat people without respect for their race or sex. And it's hard. It's, it's just hard to process because that's not how people talk. I
0: imagine that's intentional. Because if it's vague, and I don't exactly know what I'm allowed to say or not say, I might just not say anything.
3: Exactly. Is that the concern? That is a huge concern is known as a chilling effect, because when teachers don't know where the line is, they don't discuss this information. And specifically with the Stop Woke Act, it also says that for the prohibited concepts, you can discuss them if you do so objectively without endorsement. What does that mean in a college course? Because part of the role of an educator in higher education is to tell you, teach their students where there is an academic consensus or a widespread belief, and where there is an active academic debate. And then finally, we have an equal protection claim. And the equal protection claim is that the law was passed for racially discriminatory purposes to target Black educators and Black students. And this claim is based on statements by members of the legislature, by... Governor DeSantis and the Lieutenant Governor Nunes, you know, for this claim, we also consider the history of racism and racial discrimination in Florida, as well as contemporary statements, the impact of the law, the discriminatory impact. There's a number of things that factor into that analysis.
0: Even the name of the act hints at it being discriminatory. It's not a mistake that
3: it's stop woke.
0: What is the origin of that term?
3: You're correct that the name of the law, the Stop Woke Act, is a perfect example of the viewpoint-based discrimination that the law is assigned to fulfill because it wants to stop woke views. And the concepts that legislators and politicians think are woke are ones that are in favor of social justice, racial justice, anti-racism, equality, equity. These are the terms that are being targeted. And when Governor DeSantis celebrated that Florida will be a woke free state, he was talking about this type of speech. We filed the lawsuit and we also filed a motion for preliminary injunction. We basically asked the court to evaluate our claims now because of the harm that can result from the lawsuit if it, if we litigate on the normal schedule, which will take months, if not years.
0: I want to back up a little bit because this act, as we talked about at the very beginning, is a part of this larger movement that we're seeing across the country. Where did all of this come from? And why now, Leah, why are we seeing this groundswell of these acts now?
3: The focus on critical race theory and the hysteria around critical race theory in schools and in employer contexts has been manufactured, but the basis of it is racial backlash. There are a few data points that are really important to know when you're considering this issue. One, in 2017, for the first time in public schools, white students became the minority. That was a turning point in our country's history, where the people who were previously the majority are numerically the minority in public schools. Also, after the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and a number of Black people, there was a racial reckoning in this country where people began to talk very openly about race, the need for racial justice, and began to pursue anti-racism tactics. Anti-racism, conversations are not new, but they were more popular. And there was more support in this country than ever before for statements like Black Lives Matter, or recognizing the need for racial justice. But really, this mania began with one person, and that was Christopher Rufo. And Christopher Rufo was a conservative out of Seattle. And he was engaging in a back and forth a housing dispute with the city of Seattle. And someone sent him materials that the city was using, and he claimed that they were critical race theory. He's admitted that what he uses the term critical race theory to reference isn't actually critical race theory. Per his own words, he picked a term, demonized it, and wants to make everyone hate it. But he went to Fox News and said, this is what's happening. The government is doing it. Initially, no one responded. And he came back again on Fox News and said to the White House, The White House has President Trump can stop this. And he got a call the next day. And since then, he flew out to draft the executive order. He's been involved with drafting a number of bills across the country, including the Stop Woke Act. And it has become a rallying cry for conservatives, even though research has consistently shown that critical race theory is not being taught in K-12 schools. But it has now become once it pulled well amongst conservatives, it's become something that has very intentionally been rolled out for partisan purposes. None of this is about the best interests of students or legitimate pedagogical purposes.
0: Right. And I think it's important to note that like bringing something down to the school board level, bringing something down to the elementary education level is just honestly very, very ripe for being able to convince a large swath of Parents to get engaged, right? Because people might not be engaged in the political process, but when it comes to their kids at school, like that is a venue where there is a lot of passion.
3: It has been weaponized, and there has been research. Dr. Micah Pollack did research that found that the locations where the battles over critical race theory are the most heated, the most vehement, the most intense are also the places where the number, the percentage of white students has dropped more than 18% in the past 20 years. So we see just directly that the areas where white people were the majority, they're now the minority and really hoping to hold on to the power that they once held as the majority at the expense of students across the nation.
0: This is when it's really important to know our history and understand the process of desegregation and what that looked like and the backlash that existed there because it's still playing out today. As a prior teacher yourself, you were a teacher before you were a lawyer. Would you have even understood how to handle something like this? Had you been in the classroom today and tasked with interpreting some some kind of law, adjusting your curriculum. What does that look like from a teacher perspective?
3: I cannot imagine teaching under these circumstances. I taught political science and I taught world history. No one told me my First Amendment rights as a teacher. I didn't. It never came up. And educators and students have First Amendment rights, but the scope of them is not straightforward. It depends on If you're teaching in K-12 or you're teaching in higher ed, in the higher ed context, if teachers are directed to change their instruction in a way that affects how or what they teach, we would start to consider whether or not there is a violation of academic freedom. In the K-12 context, the government has a lot more control over what is taught. States develop standards for what is taught for consistency across schools the question is if the restriction is motivated by partisan or racial purposes. And we would start to explore from there. These are examples of things that we have heard from people that we represent. They've been instructed to change their curriculum, to remove materials by Black or LGBTQ or women authors, to avoid topics. And in some instances, directly told not to say white privilege or not to say other terms that have been associated now incorrectly with critical race theory? Those are questions that we want to hear about. The impact on classrooms has been different, and that's something that we have to consider very carefully. And one thing that we haven't talked about so far, but I do want to flag, is that in the scope of what classroom censorship bills prohibit, there are also very steep penalties. There's a range of penalties. In Oklahoma, teachers who violate HB 1775, their classroom censorship law, they can have their teaching licenses revoked. In Florida, the penalty in the higher ed context is that the state will withhold funding from the university, millions of dollars. The universities cannot function without the funding from the state. Public universities cannot function without funding from the state. The stakes are very, very high.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it. And what a weight to put on teachers who we already put so much on
3: also a threat for educators of color, particularly Black educators who are already seen as when they're teaching about issues of race and racism, students may not receive that as in teaching objectively. And so this is yet another way that those discussions, the classes that are being taught about race and racism at many schools are being led by Black professors or educators of color who are specifically being targeted by this law because it addresses the materials that are in inherently discussed in their courses and puts them particularly at risk.
0: And similar to educators of color that are being particularly targeted and put at risk, you have students of color who are sitting in these classrooms, largely at predominantly white institutions, who already feel perhaps isolated. Um, and this is like another level of that isolation. I can only imagine the chilling effect of the contributions of students of color in classrooms, but also just the ability to to learn as you said culturally responsive material i know we touched on johanna's right to information what are things that students can do
3: that's a great question there's examples from across the country of successful efforts on behalf of educators and students and parents and community members who are concerned and want to preserve the right of their students to learn this valuable information there's a number of things that students can do including writing petitions. We've seen students start student groups or join existing coalitions or organizations to oppose classroom censorship efforts. Students have created banned book clubs where they read materials that are now banned from their classrooms and affirmatively seek out that information. Parents and students can activate their PTA to resist efforts and to speak up at school board hearings, at Department of Education hearings, just organizing support. Another option is to submit letters to the editor about how this law or bill will affect you or your concerns about how it will affect your education and what you want to learn about. Utilizing social media is always a good thing. And then engaging candidates directly by asking them target targeted questions repeatedly asking them questions at public forum one so it stays in the front of their mind that people are asking about this but also it causes them to commit to how they will act on a certain issue and it draws attention to the issue
0: Leah thank you so so much for joining us it was really a pleasure to speak with you and to dig in a little bit more on our work and how people can fight for their rights
3: thank you so much for having me Johanna has
0: noticed some changes in her classes this year, like professors giving a precursor before a lecture or discussion about racism or sexism, detailing how what they are about to teach is theoretical in nature, not factual. A move that feels deeply invalidating of her life experiences, and one that makes her fear for the ways that students younger than her will be impacted.
1: After the misery that was my high school experience, um, I was thinking about my younger siblings, my little sister in particular, and just feeling hope that when she's in high school in maybe 10 years, that she won't have to experience the same things that I did. But if laws like this Stop Book Act stay in place, nothing's going to change. I think that, you know, people are afraid that You know, especially after the upheaval of 2020, all these conversations about anti-racism are being pushed to the forefront. And because for so long people were taught that colorblindness was the solution to racism, it makes them really, really uncomfortable and they're tired of having these conversations. And that's why you see this pushback. But the pushback is regressive. We are othered and we are marginalized. And I don't want for my little sister to feel the same way that I felt It really took the joy out of school. It took the joy out of learning. I've always loved to learn. I would wake up and cry because I did not even want to go because it was so miserable. And that sucks because I was looking forward to high school and I wanted to enjoy school, but I couldn't because of the things that I was having to deal with. And so what I want to see is a future where my little sister can be in any space and feel comfortable and feel at home and it's not being microaggressed every day by people's children who are supposedly colorblind yet harassing students of color at school. That's what I want. That's the future that I want for those coming after me.
0: Dr. Thompson Dorsey shares this concern, but she says she will continue to do her job undeterred.
2: Right. And I would, I will never stop either. I mean, that's, that's the thing. I think you know it's a big part of how I was raised, but I think just <laughs> intrinsically, i was just one of those you know people who I just won't stop. I just <laughs> like a dog with a bone, right? I just can't. And and particularly when I know I feel it, it ha- it's right. I have to do what's right. And so you know I I won't shut up. I won't ever. You know you could tell me I can't teach the class anymore, but I will use the law to my advantage You'll find and stand way. out on the courtyard and teach it anyway by any means necessary. And I
0: will. And I will. A big thank you to Johanna Duffin, Dr. Thompson Dorsey, and Leah Watson for joining us. And thanks to you for listening. We'll be back next week with another back to school episode. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to Out Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong.